in a galaxy torn apart by the last war. Vast pirate fleets roam from system to system, robbing, extorting, and rounding up slaves. Any attempt to form any kind of central authority larger than a city-state is quickly and brutally crushed. In this dark time, the only way to survive is to stay small and inconspicuous. Amidst this chaos, however, thousands of independent crews managed to carry on their businesses, smugglers, relic hunters, freedom fighters, mercenaries. They roamed the dead stars and small ships, scratching out a living any way they can. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cast Dice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming. And you might say, Brad, that isn't your usual intro. You usually go on and on for the next 40 to 50 seconds about gaming renaissance and so many good games that you can spend your hobby time and hobby dollars playing. But it's a big episode. I have the author of one of 2021's biggest released games I know he's happy it's out. It, it's, been a, it's been a subject of conversation, uh, I know, for him and for many gamers for at least the last 12 months. We have the, ba- the man himself, the author, of course, of Frostgrave, Rangers of Stat Shadow Deep, Oathmark. Uh, he was on talking about Oathmark before. Of course, we're talking Joseph McCullough. Welcome to Cast Dice. It is so great to have you. Well, thanks for having me back. I had to get rid of the whole intro because I wanted to read the beginning of the new <laughs> Stargrave book. Now, of course, I talked about one of these big release games. It's Stargrave. And Stargrave is, uh, if we're going to boil it down, uh, and we often do the elevator speech on this podcast, it is a skirmish-based game in a, a science fiction universe. It is almost, and I, I cringe to say, a, and please excuse me, Joseph, for this comparison. It's the mm-hmm. science fiction version of your very popular game, Frostgrave. Would you say that's a fair? Yeah, uh, I, I would. I mean, certainly philosophically, if if not completely mechanically, but <laughs> <laughs> right, it does share a lot of the mechanics. But yeah, and but more I, importantly, that kind of philosophical underpinning to it, yeah, is the same. And we will get into the similarities and differences, and there are quite a few differences. Uh, but let's start by talking about the universe. Now, this is a very rich uh, universe. It's it's sort of summed up in a couple of pages of fluff. I think you've done a wonderful job of laying out this expansive universe that where it feels like almost anything can happen, and yet you already have this feeling of things have gone horribly wrong, pirates are running the place, you got to say lean and mean in this universe to get ahead. Talk to us about the Stargrave universe and how you came up with it, because it is, it's great, it's evocative, it, it makes me want to play your game. <laughs> I think one of the kind of challenges of my job uh, or the challenge I set up for myself when, when writing these games is to to really find a balance between giving a player enough of a setting to get them excited, but not so much that they feel constrained by it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I wanted to paint this picture of this universe, but at the same time allow the players to kind of lay their own version on top of that so so we have this universe that's that's really just a mess um you know that has been just 
blown apart by war so that there's no big big powers left except these kind of uh, pirates roaming around. And I, I started with that because I wanted a universe that allowed the players to kind of take their crews on any adventure. I wanted them to feel if they wanted to be completely independent, like I can do whatever I want. I can be a bounty hunter or I can be a smuggler or I can be an art dealer, you know, mm. whatever. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. You're, you're free to do that. That said, if you want to kind of engage with the bigger picture, there is this, this menacing threat of, of the pirates and the pirates are pretty generic. So you can, you can see them as, as true space pirates, or you can see them almost as an evil empire or whatever, but they're the dominant evil force. And if you want to kind of create your crew as a reaction to that, to be battling that, then you can do that as well. But, you know, mainly I wanted a, a setting that was just really open, that um, you, your crews can be bouncing from planet to planet and going on these adventures. And, and while there is this threat they have to worry about, there isn't kind of this question of, you know, we're going to have to get our paperwork stamped at every planet, you know? <laughs> right, exactly. Because there's nobody controlling that. There's nobody controlling really the comings and goings and and you're free to do that. And, you know, in fact, it's, it's better to do that so that you're not drawing attention to yourself. So, and it also gave an excuse as to why, why you have a small crew and why you keep that crew small. Uh, because, you know, in most war games, you, you just kind of hand wave that, um, mm -hmm. you know, we play with 10 figures because 10 figures is easy to play with. And, and that's, that's fine. a Spanish game. Exactly. Exactly. But, but I also like to have just a little bit of justification in the world for kind of why that is or why that might be. Cause otherwise you're thinking, well, I've got 20,000 credits. Why am I not just buying my whole small private army? And the mm -hmm. answer is because if you did that, somebody would notice and come squash it. So you're better off, you know, taking those 20,000 by buying two really good robots instead or whatever. So nice. Now the last time you were, you were on, you talked extensively about your history um, in, as a role player and digging into mm -hmm. um, sort of fantasy and science fiction novels, um, fiction, and how you actually created Frostgrave uh, as a way to play with um, your vast catalog of role-playing miniatures. Um, is that yeah. a fair assumption? Am I getting that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, did I'm assuming then that you also had a fair catalog of science fiction models somewhere. <laughs> um, but one of your, one of your big... Uh, strengths, I think, as as a a miniature war game designer, if if I may be so bold, is to mm -hmm. is to to set up the narrative. It's it's to have scenarios where you're actually involved. It, it's almost like role playing light, which is fairly rare in tabletop games, and even more rare when it's done right. Just reading through the scenarios in Stargrave, there's ten scenarios in there just to start you out. And of course, that isn't even getting in into the dead and alive scenario generator, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute. There is just so much story involved with this. It, it's it's incredible. Um, I'm not sure where my question went in there other than to say it's fantastic. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about how you approach that? Because narrative, yeah. I mean, even with Oathmark, a mass battle game, 
the narrative was an, an integral part of how that pulled together. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about your history and how that led you into creating games like this? Yeah, I mean, I've always, I guess I've always thought a lot about games um, in, in kind of a, almost a meta sense, mm. you know, why, why do we play games and why do I, well, why do I play games? What, what is it that draws me to games? And, and with role-playing, it was definitely the story um, that we generated. And miniatures, I started to realize, well, there's a couple of different reasons why I might play a miniatures game beyond the just kind of fun of coming to the table and, and hanging out with friends, which, which is the main thing. But, but you know, you can, you can play a miniatures game to win, in, in which case you keep coming back to the table because you want to try out new combos or new strategies. Um, and that's, that's fine. That's a, that's a way to play, but I realized that's not a way to play that I'm interested in. Um, it just, it just doesn't really appeal to me. So what does keep me coming back on the table is, is creating a sense of narrative in the same way, not in the same way, but, but similar to how it's done in a role-playing game. So, so for me, like having a campaign element is, is not, in addition to a war game, it is an absolutely crucial element to a war game because that's what's going to keep me coming back, you know, watching my, my guys grow and telling their story. And every time I play, I want to tell a new story. And um, a, lot of, a lot of war games make that a little challenging by not, not really giving you any story to, to start with. They just kind of said, this is how you set up your figures and here is the objective. Um, I want to know why I'm kind of, what's great about that objective and why am I setting up over here? And and I think if you can give those, then already you're getting the, the player running into the story. And that's, that's what gets me excited. And I think that's what gets a certain type of, of war gamer excited as well. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, gives me a chance to, to do a little bit of fiction writing but, but not have to actually come up with, you know, full plots. <laughs> exactly. Well, you're, yeah. you're giving your players an opportunity to pull together their own narrative and their own story. Because in this game, yeah. rather than having a wizard and an apprentice, like in Frostgrave, you actually have a captain, like a, a ship's captain. Now, that may not be a military title. It, it could just be, you know, the head of your warband. And then, you know, their trusty first mate. And then those are sort of your main two characters, uh, and then you bulk out the rest of your crew with eight soldiers. And now four of those can be specialists and four of those can just be your general grunts. But what really adds to the narrative aspect and really makes me think almost right off the bat that this is almost a role-playing light game is that when you have your captain and first mate, you, you get, assign them a background. Now, that isn't like saying my planet's from, or sorry, my, my captain's from this random planet. It is actually almost like a character class. And what's so, in a way, it's like the, the type of wizard that's in Frostgrave. But in Frostgrave, the wizard and the apprentice need to match the type of magic that yeah. they are practicing. Whereas in Stargrave, your captain and first mate, they can have the same backgrounds, but they can have other ones as well. You could have biomorphs, techers. You could have a cyborg, a, a veteran soldier. There's there's eight separate backgrounds that really sort of sets the stage. And not even getting into the mechanics of it really helps you to to 
base not only what miniatures you're going to be using, but then sort of almost sets up your story to start with. How intentional was the narrative in that process? Because I know while it's similar to Frostgrave, it is mm-hmm. noticeably different. Yeah, it, it, it really is. Um, there's, there's a couple of kind of things going on there. One is the setting is so much bigger than, than Frostgrave. You know, Frostgrave is this one city and, um, and, and you, and really the wizards are the only people that are going to want to go there because it's just kind of too dangerous and not worth it for everyone else. Whereas now I'm playing with an entire galaxy. So, (laughs) you know, you've got a lot more kind of diverse people that are, that are, uh, moving around in it and and because you're not doing quite as specific a thing in it again you're going to attract different types but with the backgrounds yeah i think that that really was drawing upon kind of my role-playing background and and yeah a little bit like that character class it's not as kind of fixed as most character classes are in role-playing games but but also i wanted to do something it's almost like taking that setting again on a smaller level so it's kind of like here is a bit of what your background is like. You know, you are a cyborg. You've gone through this. But I'm not going to tell you specifically why or what it means for you or, you know, what it is that then you want. I'm still going to leave that open to you. I'm going to say, you know, here are some reasons you might be doing what you're doing, but uh, the ultimate decision is up to you. Um, the other thing that comes out of that is I kind of, when I came to work on Stargrave, I kind of said to myself, I'm going to let this game be a bit more complicated than Frostgrave. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my goals with Frostgrave is always to keep it very simple. Um, and I think, for one thing, since since a lot of the people that, that play Stargrave obviously have already played Frostgrave, um, I felt a little more kind of freedom to to make it a little more complicated. And one of those things was to to give you two really different characters. Um, so to take the wizard and apprentice and break them apart from each other and say, yeah. yeah. So now you can have the cyborg and the the robot expert in the same thing, or the the mystic is essentially a space wizard, and and your soldier can be your two characters, and they can have no overlap whatsoever in kind of their their abilities. Um, so you you know. It takes a bit more experience as a as a gamer to be able to hold that information in your head at once, but um, but I think most people can do that, and um, and especially if you've got some more game experience. But yeah. but also, yeah, it, it furthers the narrative, and and I think in a lot of your um, kind of classic sci-fi stories from whatever media, that that's something you see a lot is kind of you got your main character, and then you got his his sidekick or his friend and and they're quite good at different things mm-hmm. you know you've got your luke skywalker who is your kind of becoming your space wizard anyway whereas you've got han solo who's just your rogue and um you know i wanted to to give players the ability to have that dynamic within their group within their crew yeah, when I was reading that section, uh, it's ironic that you said Luke Skywalker and Han Solo, or maybe that's just some of the iconic science <laughs> fiction characters we think of, yeah. because my immediate thought was um, Han Solo and Chewbacca. 
you have right. your rogue, yeah. and you have uh, what a he's sort of a technician, giant monster guy. Um, and then <laughs> you know you put them together, and they are very different personalities. Um, they they have a few overlapping skill sets, but they they would be different classes in this game, um, or they yeah. would have different backgrounds. Um, now, of course, a lot of people expect magic when we're talking Frostgrave. It is literally a game yeah. of wizards. Um, now, there are soldiers in that game and there are monsters, but at its core, it's a different warbands of wizards searching for loot against one another or working together against other factors. Now, in this game, you don't have spells, but every, but each of these backgrounds allows you to have different, as you call it in this game, powers. When you choose your background, you do have a core pool of powers that you can choose when you're creating your character. But then you also allow players, um, and in some cases force players, to choose some powers that are out of their background category as well. So mm-hmm. it, it very immediately you're already working out of the box, so to speak. Um, now those powers <laughs> you're not as good at using, but you are actually adding an individual spin on top of those character classes, background et cetera, et cetera, um, which really does help you to individualize your character right off the bat. Was that something that was in Frostgrave? Because if it was, I didn't see it, but when I've been messing around with creating characters the last couple of days, but just that subtle forcing someone to pick one or two powers outside of their background grouping mm-hmm. really has already made me go, oh, now that's cool. Now how can I put that <laughs> on a model? Or, hey, that would match this model I already have in my case. Is that something that you pulled from Frostgrave, or is that something new? Um, I, I would say it kind of develops from from Frostgrave. I mean, first off, I kind of want to say, like, I ended up calling them powers because I just couldn't come up with a better word. Um, be, because what you're really talking about is is things that that vary all the way from what is kind of a superpower or even something like a spell to things that are more like skills or innate characteristics like luck. It can, it can really be kind of anything um, and thus powers to just cover that. And, but if you, you know, I don't want people to think, you know, if you want to make a guy who is basically just a hard nosed soldier, you can do that. He will have powers, but they will be powers like coordinating fire upon an enemy or, you know, figuring out how to better target the grenade strike or whatever like that. Um, so it, to get back to your question, in, in Frostgrave, you, you've got these wizards and they have their school and um, they do have to go outside of their school to pick some of their spells, but they are restrained by, you know, you have to pick, if you're a necromancer, you then have to pick one witch spell and you have to pick one elementalist spell and things like that. Whereas in Stargrave, You've got these powers in your class that you have to choose from, and then you can take powers from anything else. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, that was part of that comes from from becoming having greater confidence in, in kind of my game design ability. You know, giving giving players freedom is is a very scary thing to do as a game designer, especially when you're dealing with, you know, there's fifty something powers in the game and, and trying to figure out how they're all going to interact which is essentially impossible that's that's too many pop combinations for anyone to to fully understand so that what you have to do is make sure that you're balancing kind of each power individually and um 
not being scared of, of anyone taking it with, with any other one. And um, from, from the years since I did Frost Grape to now doing Star Grape, I've become more confident in, in doing that. And thus, I felt more confident in giving players more freedom to, to kind of construct their characters. And, um, and really, I just, I want to be able to give players the ability to build any character they can imagine. Um, so, you know, if you want to do the space wizard, but he used to be a soldier, then you can do that by taking some space wizard powers and some powers that are more soldiery, you know, or you can have the, I want uh, a rogue, but he's got, you know, just a few mental powers as well. So, you know, mainly he's swindling and pulling fast ones, but every so often he can, you know, do some mind trick on somebody or, or something like that. So, yeah, it's really just, I want you to build the character you want. And whether that's, you know, you take a miniature and you're like, oh man, this miniature is great because he's got this and this and this. How can I map that too? Or the other way, which is, I really want a character that can do this, this, and this. Let me go find a miniature. Because um, I think, I've, you know, I've used both in my life and they're mm -hmm. both equally fun. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, just to add variety, as you said, there's 50 plus powers in this game. And so if we're yeah. taking the existing six, six backgrounds and we're, you know, you're choosing from the list of powers that each background has, and then you're forced to choose some from outside of those, you really do have a lot of variation within characters. You're not just going to see the same guy every time, which, you know, does right. happen in some games. Um, especially when you have named characters. In this case, it's so generic that you know <laughs> you can you can create almost anyone, which is again uh, for a miniature agnostic game, fantastic because it allows you to create profiles to match the models you may already have or have always wanted to field. But one of the things I like about the powers in particular is that there, for some of them, there's a strain if you use this ability, you can actually hurt yourself. And I almost envision this as, um, you know, I was looking at creating a hard-nosed soldier, like you were talking about a minute ago, mm -hmm. as one of my captains, and then thought of it as maybe he has something hardwired into him, it being science right. fiction setting. And then if he uses yeah. this uh, ability, all of a sudden he's actually like overheating something, or this is some sort of lost forbidden tech. And then by using it, he's actually, it wasn't really designed for humans and it's kind of hurting him <laughs> to do it. But even as I'm saying that out loud, I'm creating a narrative in my head, um, which yeah, again, I think is, is the magic of this. Now, again, some of these powers hurt you to use. And of course you have to make them, you have to roll a dice to get them to go off to uh in the first place and it was always that 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 feel bad of like oh when you have a game where you have to roll to activate an ability and you <laughs> just miss it oh it stinks especially if it hurts yeah. you but this game you can actually if you're within what is it three you can actually spend wounds off your character to then make up those missing pips on the dice so you're like, you almost, do I want to hurt myself more to make this work? Like your guy's really concentrating and straining and uh, his circuits are overloading. I, th I think, again, it, it, adds, um, it adds some difficult decisions on the tabletop when you're like, ooh, do I, how badly do I want this to happen? And again, in doing so, you're creating that narrative. Absolutely. Now that is something new, yes? 
Uh, no, that's actually in, in Frostgrave. Oh. Um, so it, um, well, the strain is new. So okay. that, that, that doesn't occur in, in, but the kind of pushing yourself, um, aspect is in Frostgrave. Um, and you can actually do it, um, to, to any level. So if you want to, if you fail by 10 and you want to spend 10 health, you can actually do that. But of course, you know, you're, you're nearly killing yourself. So, but it's, but I think it's one of the real fun kind of decision elements. I mean, once you, once you've gotten past the narrative in a game, um, well, hopefully you'll never get past the narrative. You'll be fully sunk into it. But once mm-hmm. you've kind of set narrative aside as a, as a thought, as a designer, what makes a game fun is the decisions that a player has to make throughout a game, you know, and it, at its most generic, you're making these decisions of, you know, do I walk this figure this way or that way? And do I shoot at that guy or do I shoot at that guy? And that's, that's fun enough, but, but the more decisions you can put in, the more meaningful decisions that you can give to a player, the more, the more end of the game they're going to be and the more inter- interactive the game the game becomes so exactly. yeah it's now you know i give you the choice of you get these powers which one do you use and you rolled for it and if it didn't work you now have the choice of well is it is it worth kind of gambling on it to get it to work and um you know should i should i spend the health now or should i save it till later i love that aspect of kind of you know limited resource here so so how do i use it and um yeah, and and again, I, I think that does fit with the, the narrative. With, with with wizards, it's the classic, you know, I'm I'm holding the spells and my ears are starting to bleed kind of thing because mm-hmm. the power coursing through me. Whereas whereas strain or, or the, the kind of empowering here is is left a bit more generic. So you know, I, I love your idea of yeah having the kind of gear hardwired in there that's not meant to be and it's kind of burning. But you know, you can also just see it as it, it requires incredible concentration. And, and leads to fatigue or, yeah. you know, you're stressing your system if, if that's what, what you want or, yeah, or just part of you is going to have to be completely given over to doing this. So you just don't have as enough, as much left to give to something else. So Now, you were talking a second ago about interacting with the tabletop and uh, giving people uh, things to do on the tabletop um, and not just yeah. your move forward, shoot, make an armor save. Uh, and this game literally revolves around you collecting loot. You don't have set turns, as in that we're not going to play Stargrave for six turns and then we'll see who's winning, and that person wins the game. In this game, you need to go out and get loot. Now, in in Frostgrave, you're trying to collect treasure, but in yeah. Stargrave, there's two kinds. We have the physical loot that you need to open the container that it's in um, and you need to get it and then collect it and then you have it. And then there's a different kind of loot. Talk to us a little bit about this because it is, Mm -hmm. it is nice that you have multiple kinds of loot and you need different characters almost to collect the different kinds. But it's also nice that you're not just running up, grabbing treasure and running. You actually have to interact um, with both both the terminals to collect data and with um, containers to collect loot. Can you talk to us a little bit about the the design choices that went into that? Because um, I think it really does make for interesting gameplay. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that mainly 
So that grows out of the narrative because, you know, thinking about all these different stories that influenced me, I just realized, you know, there's, there's really different things people consider treasure in, in a science fiction setting, you know, in, in a fantasy setting, it's usually, you know, it's either magic stuff or it's money equivalent. Mm -hmm. Whereas in a sci-fi setting, really in any modern setting and beyond, you know, data can become a treasure. And, um, you know, again, using the Star Wars, you know, the Death Star plans are the big treasure of, mm-hmm. of that movie, you know. And um, but there's also plenty of sci-fi things where they're still going after, a, you know, a golden idol or, or you know, the super alien tech. Um, so I just wanted to bring both of those elements into the game. And as I thought about that, I started to realize, well, actually, this is this gives me a real opportunity to do a few different things because. One of the other things I wanted was to bring in the interaction between people and computers, um, because again, that's a you know just a huge trope of sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I wanted to have characters that were essentially hackers um, and get that kind of Shadowrun vibe, where you know you got the one person hacking into the computer while everybody else is giving them cover fire and. Um, mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so I just developed a system where sometimes your loot is going to be, be data and you need this, in theory, anybody can go up and try to punch the keyboard and, and get that data out. But obviously you're going to have some people that are better at that than others. And, and in other cases, you're going to have, yeah, it's, it's the gold press latinum that's, that's in a strong box and you got to have somebody run up and actually bust open the box. And mm-hmm. that's not going to be your guy who's good at hacking into things. That's going to be your guy who's good with a crowbar, you know? Exactly. A sci-fi crowbar, whatever that is. Um, well, pick, as I call it in the game, for yeah. lack of any better term. And um, so this gives... The other thing this this does is when you put all this on the table... So one of the reasons I came up with, with Treasure to begin with was not only to give you these kind of goals that weren't necessarily killing each other, but it's designed to divide your figures on the table. So that you're not just walking around as this ten man squad, which just isn't very interesting mm-hmm. in a, in a skirmish game. You know, it's it's more fun and free flowing if if guys have to run in different directions. So by having multiple loot, you've got to run in different directions already. Now by having two different types of loot, you've actually got certain figures that are going to be more drawn to running towards certain types of loot. Mm-hmm. You know, your your hacker figure is going to want to go for that data and not. The, the strong box. Well, you know, if you're smart, you've brought one of each or, you know, a couple so that you can think about how, how am I going to divide into my sub teams here and send guys different directions. And, um, and also this perhaps doesn't show so much in the rule book, but it's something that comes up in, in a lot of the supplements. This then gave me rules to do other things so that having that guy who can hack in and, and download data becomes useful for hacking in and opening doors um, or hacking into security systems and and turning off the the defenses. Whereas the guy who can, you know, break into boxes then becomes good at breaking down doors or, you know, cutting, cutting through bulkheads or things like that. So it it gave me more rules to, to interact with the table, which was, was really fun without, you know, having to create full new rules for those things. Um, 
yeah, so that's that's where the kind of different loot comes from and where it takes you. And and, um, and then it also gave me separate treasure tables you could roll on and mm-hmm. find different stuff. Um, so yeah, just brings a fun new element again. Just that little bit more complicated than Frostgrave, but also gives it that little more setting flavor and uh, more possibility. And it does give you, as you say, uh, more uh, gives you more opportunity to play around with your warband, your crew. Um, because yeah. again, you have your captain, you have your first mate, and you have eight other guys coming along for the ride. Now, eight of those, it's they're all called soldiers. Um, four of them could be specialists, which are sort of the upskilled versions, and four of them are just basic plebs. Now, they could be anything from, you know, your basic guy with a rifle, um, a trooper. You could have a medic, um, a guard dog. Uh, Of course, you said the hacker or his more physical uh, counterpart, the chiseler. Or you could have, there's the free recruit if you really don't have any more money to (laughs) spend, right? Um, And I love that. You have 400 credits to spend on your soldiers. And when you're looking at your basic ones, you're like, yeah, I can easily do this. They're 10, 20... 50, no problem. And then you get to the specialist ones and you go all the way up to armored troopers and you're going, oh dear, that's 150. Hmm. I can't get 400, you know, (laughs) might get two of those. uh, And that's like, that's three quarters of my budget. But yeah, there's, there's all sorts of things. You have a flamethrower trooper, uh, a grenadier, sniper, pathfinder, the gunner who has the the machine gun, laser cannon, Vasquez from Aliens. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's all kinds of characters in there that you can really then tease out. You can even mix and match their equipment a little bit. You can switch out a carbine for a shotgun, for example. So depending on what miniatures you are looking to use, uh, me looking at my old classic 1980s uh, Adeptus Abar. Uh, Arbides models, I was thinking, oh, it's too bad I can't have basic guys with shotguns. And then I realized you could and got very excited. <laughs> so um, I, I guess uh, I guess uh, I'm very excited about the character creation in this game. And I kind of wanted mm-hmm. to share some of my thoughts um, with the people listening. Were there any character classes, when I say character classes, I mean more types of soldiers that hit the the cutting room floor that might show up later, or do you think you got a nice spread there? Because it seems like you've covered a lot of bases. Go, I mean, obviously your captain and first mate have a lot of diversity and you can really kit them out. And it would be really easy to have really basic soldiers, but you've given us a good selection there too. Yeah. I mean, essentially there's always more, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, uh, and, and, you know, sometimes people say like, oh, why didn't you, you include that in the basic book? That, that should be there. And generally the answer is because I didn't think of it at the time I was writing the basic book. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I've now done a supplement and I'm working on another one for Stargrave, which will Ooh. appear later. And, and there are a couple of new soldiers that appear in those. And they tend to be of, of two things, either like, yeah, OK, that probably is something that I should have thought of when I was doing the basic book and just didn't. Um, or they're very kind of specialized. Um, you know, uh, they're, they're something that you might want in your warband, 
it, generally a person will either really want one or they really won't because it doesn't fit with their kind of right. vision of you know their war band or even their universe um so there there are things that are better kind of not being in the main book because the the main book is meant to give you these kind of this raft of generic options you know so that you can build it any way you want and not uh, you know i don't want to to point you too hard towards one specific setting you know whereas but like a, a couple of people have commented online that there's no uh really good hand-to-hand person there there are a couple of, of guys in there that are better hand-to-hand fighters yeah um and that that that's honestly because you know as i worked on the game it was kind of like you know don't don't bring your knife to a gunfight you know yeah, exactly <laughs> what do you really want to take a soldier that doesn't carry a gun because he's probably not going to live that long um you know you can do that a bit with the captain there is kind of a an, an option for if you want your kind of lightsaber wielding wielding guy but um but it you know that's a special person not but you know a soldier um but i you know i have now come up with a few soldiers so that if you really want that in your warband you, you can do that these are guys that specialize in fighting with knives or you know vibro knives or electro knives or whatever mm-hmm. um but again a lot of people just are going to look at that and go why would i want that that doesn't fit with how i see science fiction or how i see my crew so but for some people it really does you know they want that klingon armed with a bat lift and you know they're never going to be happy until till one of them's in their their gang so i want to give them that that possibility I got to say, I wondered that as well when I was looking at the soldiers, but then I thought okay. of that scene from Indiana Jones where the guy pulls out the sword, does all the fancy tricks, and, then, <laughs> and he shoots him and then turns exactly. around and puts his gun away and went, oh yeah, this is a, this is a game with guns, of course. Exactly. Um, but so, as you, you know, say, if, there if, are guys with hand-to-hand weapons. It's not like they're, yeah. they're just not, you know, the sword master. Exactly. And I mean, one of the things you get is that, you know, if you do have a guy kind of armed to fight in hand to hand, he has an automatic advantage because most people are not, most people are carrying a knife. So they, they have a weapon to fight with in hand to hand, but that's not what they want to be doing. You know, whereas the guy who's carrying a dedicated hand weapon already has a slight advantage over them. So, and, you know, I I found some ways to tweak that, that, that I think up that advantage a bit without, you know, without ending up in that situation where turn one, the Tyranids run all the way across the mm-hmm. table and are already in hand-to-hand combat before you've had a chance to fire, you know, which uh, I've always, you know, that's, that's just picking one example, but, but it has come up in games a lot. Yeah. So, you know, we're going to make hand-to-hand viable by not giving the other <laughs> opponent a chance to shoot, which I always thought, well, that's not very, fun no it doesn't always feel nice to be on the receiving end of that having been there once or twice um yeah yeah well uh, i've had a bunch of people ask and i have two very specific questions i i think i know the answers because you very clearly laid them out in the rule book but i think we should talk about it on the podcast because i have had people asking if people want did these profiles work for aliens as well and you say in the book that it does um now you will be handling sort of more out there aliens later but this the basic profiles of what you get in the game works for if you want to have alien crew members um and of course we're going to talk about big beasts in a minute would you say that's a a fair representation 
Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's 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 almost it is a joke, really. But if you look at almost all the sci-fi out there, what you tend to have is mostly humans, mm-hmm. and then a few guys with different heads. You know, yeah, <laughs> like, a dude in a suit. Yep, yeah. got it. Exactly. And I mean, it's funny because that actually maps onto miniatures incredibly well. Because mm-hmm. if you're doing with like plastics, it means you can just have a human body and glue a different head on. Um, mm-hmm. But but it also means, and, and in those movies, like, okay, you know, I suppose Worf is a bit stronger than, than um, you know, other members of the, the Enterprise crew. But yeah. but that could just be his class, not his necessarily his, his species, you know. Exactly. So I, it, the rules don't need to change to accommodate that. You know, your, your, your soldier of a given type has these stats, no matter whether he's a, a human or you know, a lizard creature or mm-hmm. a Klingon or whatever. And, um, and again, that's just me giving, not that you need my permission, but, but even in the rule book saying here, do whatever you want, use whatever minis you want and have them look as cool as you want them to look. Um, you know, it does. And, it, and, and really the only thing that matters there is that you and your opponent can distinguish them. Um, yeah. you know, we don't, you've only got 10 guys aside and and some of those are very specific. So it's, it's really a matter of making sure that both players can keep track of, of all the figures. And um, so really like if all, if you want your guys to all be floating space squids, you know, that's fine. So long as they've got different guns that your opponent can tell, well, this is the one with the the big cannon and that's the one with the pistol. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Um, Yeah, it does. It does break down again a bit when you start talking about, you know, giant centipedes that can spit acid or something like that. But, but those aren't ones that are normally going to be in your crew. No. You, know, you have to be able to at least achieve, achieve some sort of communication with them for them to be a part of your crew. So, uh, however, you might yeah. run into them on the tabletop. And again, we'll get to that in a second, but let's also yeah. talk about the other big character miniature question, which is robots. Uh, can yep. you touch on how robots, because uh, there's there's quite a few robot miniatures out there, and people have been asking, can I can I use my robots, please? Yeah, and then this was a this this is a decision that I kind of I thought about a lot and went back and forth on because I could have just gone the same way and said, you know, if you want to use a robot, that's fine. He has the same stats, but but that was the one case that didn't quite feel right to me because I feel like. Unlike the guy with the rubber head, um, who basically works the same as a human in a story, the robots are always a bit different. You know, they always react to situations a little differently. And and I wanted to, so I decided, okay, I am going to make this distinction in the game. And um, so robots, so basically you can declare, whenever you recruit a, a soldier to your crew, you can just declare they're a robot. You know, there's no additional cost or or anything they're just a robot version of whatever soldier that is mm-hmm. and that basically comes with a few advantages and, and a couple of penalties um so you know robots obviously don't have to breathe mm-hmm. you know so in any scenario that involves you know gas or a lack of oxygen you know they have an advantage and in the same way they don't get wounded you know they're, they don't suffer from pain which um is a part of the combat system on the other hand there are lot of things that affect them differently there are certain attacks that are more effective against robots um 
there are ways to heal in the game that robots can't benefit from. Um, and so none of these things are huge. You know, these, these are all kind of, kind of subtle things. Um, but there's also, there's also powers that basically you can use on robots or you can not use on robots. And so it becomes the question of when I'm assembling my crew, is there an advantage to having a robot? So if obviously if you're playing a robot expert as your captain, you're probably going to have quite a few robots yeah. in your in your crew. They may all be robots because your powers tend to work better on robots or tend to work through robots. Um, whereas if you don't have any of those powers, you might think, actually, I don't I don't need robots. I don't want to take the, the kind of risk to, to having robots in in my gang or at least having a lot of them. Um, but also, it's just kind of I think a lot of people love having that gang that's got one robot in it mm -hmm. just because it helps set that figure apart he's he's the robot you know <laughs> exactly danger you know, will robinson just, yeah exactly. exactly right visually it makes your 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 collection miniatures more interesting um so yeah so i wanted to to do that and um you know i i'm still kind of that's one that i'm still kind of tweaking as i go along because it's it is subtle and then getting that balance right is is difficult but it, like i said it's not a huge factor one no. or the other um, no as unless... you say there's there's pros and cons to it um yeah. and and it but it, it gives it a distinct flavor uh having a robot character or robot miniatures in your warband that makes it different than if you didn't and again that just gives you more choice and variety right yep nice well i guess if we're gonna talk aliens we're gonna talk robots uh and we might as well go and talk about the the third sort of player on the tabletop when you sit down to play stargrave because typically i mean you can play stargrave in multiple player games uh as in three or four players at a time i see people doing it the stargrave all the time sorry frostgrave all the time you can do you, i hope i didn't just say that backwards um you can play stargrave <laughs> with lots of players um, you yes. can play it solo, and we'll get to the solo in a sec, but most often when you play this game, you're probably going to be playing one-on-one. -on -one. Well, in Frostgrave and in Stargrave, when you are playing, uh, there are NPC gribblies that appear on the tabletop. They're, and it usually, uh, in fact, it's almost always tied specifically to the scenario. Um, you could be in a jungle and... Um, jungle animals might appear, you know, various um, fauna or um, bizarre alien creatures will come out of the woodwork when you start shooting into the brush. Um, and then you interact with them along the way. And depending on which of the missions or your settings, um, there are a, a slew of monsters in the bestiary. How, I mean, it really is a distinctive feature of your games. Um, I guess, how did that come to be? And you clearly like the mechanic. It seems to work really <laughs> well. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's kind of a couple of reasons going on that, that why this occurs in all my games. The, the main one is that for me, these games, any miniatures games are an excuse to collect miniatures. Um, and there's so many good monster miniatures out yeah. there but you rarely need them for for war games um, because you tend to build your gang or your army and you fight somebody else's gang or army 
So I was like, man, I just I just want an excuse to, to buy dinosaurs or you know like whatever. So so here it is. Here's that excuse. Um, what I didn't realize was that people would take this to mean, well, I need to get them all, you know, which was quite never quite my intent. But but hey, fine. If if that's how you have fun with it, then then, then go for it. Um, I think they call that the yeah. Pokemon phenomenon. I got to get them all. Is Collect that, them all. Yeah, yeah. That's, it. that's it. Whereas for me, it was always kind of this is almost like I'm showing you my collection and thus I've built a, a random encounter chart to, to match it. I encourage you to do the same. Um, yeah. But if you want to use mine, that's fine. Here, here it is. Um, but also I just, I love chaos in war games. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's from that chaos that the narrative emerges and that the best stories emerge and that the best laughs emerge. Um, and and nothing brings chaos more than having kind of a neutral third party show up mm-hmm. and just start causing chaos. Yeah. And, you know, you know, and again, that's, that's, that's a movie trope, you know, where, you know, you'll have the, the good guys fighting the bad guys and suddenly the, the dinosaur shows up or the, mm-hmm. the monster escapes and, and starts just terrorizing everybody. And um, so I love that. And I love, bring that narrative element but also it it just it gives you more things to think about on the table um you know now i've now i've got uh, an alien running around in the backfield this is a problem how does that change my strategy mm-hmm. but also like is there any way i can use this to my advantage you know can i actually you know hide my guys over here so that the alien actually sees the other guy instead and starts running after him and um so so yeah, that's fun. Uh, doing it with Stargrave did present a new challenge that that I hadn't experienced in in Frostgrave or Ghost Archipelago or anything like that. In that the setting is so vast, you know, you're you're essentially talking about an entire galaxy. You can literally justify any creature you can think of. Yeah. Um, and while that's wonderful, because it means again from a miniature perspective, I can now buy any miniature I ever see, and and plunk it into a game justifiably for me creating monsters it's like oh my goodness i've got nothing to kind of cling on to here um you know whereas in frostgrave kind of start with some generic fantasy monsters and then think about what is the setting involve well there is no uh, nuanced setting like that for for stargrave because it could be on any planet so you know i can have jungle creatures i can have ice creatures i can have lava creatures <laughs> right exactly and and sometimes that that creative freedom while wonderful can be really difficult because it just you just don't even know where to start so but but you know so i drew on some some movies and some books and, and miniatures and presented a, a bunch of them that i thought would be fun and and tried to think of ones like <clears throat> what kind of monsters would be on multiple planets you know, not just specific to this one, but for some reason spread from planet to planet. And um, So just tr- try to put those in the basic book and then leave myself the freedom in expansions to say, here are specific monsters that you would encounter wherever this game happens to be, or wherever this campaign happens to be taking place. But really it is all just an excuse to collect cool minis. 
It is. It really is, right? <laughs> uh, well, while we're talking about these cool settings, now we did talk about the scenarios earlier, and there's 10 mm-hmm. of them, as we said. But they are 10 scenarios that I don't think I've seen a more varied set of scenarios in a game. Every single one of them takes place in a very different setting. Now, I know it's uh, something that's been asked of you before, but I think it's probably bears explaining a little bit if this is the first time anyone's heard you speak because the scenarios are fairly specific as in you're running around a cloud city that has holes in the deck and you might fall through (laughs) or you're on a a farm or you are in the middle of a a smuggler's meet and the fuzz shows up and in the form of pirates and everyone runs for the hills and as that's happening spaceships are taking off around you and that impacts the game or you're in a jungle, or you're in a um, a crystal forest, or you're 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 trying to loot a, a, a wrecked Warcraft. There's all kinds of settings here. How strict? I mean, and and they are fairly written. They're written fairly specifically. Um, yeah. How strict do you have to be with that, or can you start messing around with it to match your own collection? Yeah, this was this was another point that kind of gave me pause as as I was designing the game because I could have written ten scenarios that all take place in you know one dusty town on the mm-hmm. edge of the galaxy, um, but I thought that doesn't that doesn't show off the potential of this game of of this kind of of the freedom that you have to to do whatever you want, and um, so I decided, all right, nope, I'm gonna. I'm going to go for it and I'm just going to click 10 different things that I think will be fun and, and show different aspects to the game. And um, the, the good thing is, from a game design point of view, from a scenario design point of view, the rules don't care what your terrain looks like. Um, mm-hmm. The rules only care about really about distances, the distance between objects mm-hmm. and the distance of your figures to objects. Um, th- there are a few things you're going to need specifically, like, you know, there needs to be a doorway there or whatever. But but the fact is, if you have, if you own a set of blocks, you can play all of those scenarios. Yeah. You can, you can build the farmhouse out of blocks. You mm-hmm. can, you can, you know, set up, the crystal forest using blocks as crystals. And as long as those blocks are set up more or less like the scenario is mapped in terms of, you know, there is three inches between each of the blocks or crystals in this forest, or the farmhouse is roughly 10 inches square. then yeah, it really doesn't matter what that farmhouse looks like. Um, But what it means is if you want to, you can create this terrain and you can feel free to, to buy that wrecked spaceship model you've always wanted and have an excuse to put it on the table. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you shouldn't feel constrained by that. You know, one of the scenarios takes place in a swamp, but if you don't own any kind of swamp terrain, that's fine. Change it to a forest with a couple of sinkholes in it, you mm-hmm. know, so that all your trees are temperate. It doesn't matter. Um, 
It's really just making your table look as nice as you want it to look and in the way you want it to look. So, you know, if you're a big, um, if, you, if you played sci-fi games that are have a very high-tech kind of setting, you know, or an anime type of setting, well, that doesn't necessarily fit exactly with Stargrave as I wrote it. If you're playing the scenario that's set in a little town, which I paint as a Dust Bowl town, if you want to use high-tech buildings and stuff, that's fine. Again, as long as you're getting the kind of distances between the buildings and the positioning of the buildings right, it's absolutely fine. And, and that's the way you can take the game and, and map it to your setting better, you know? So that that can look like Moss Eisley, or it can look like, you know, one of the beautiful cities that the Enterprise crew beams down to and you just have to have a fight in it. You know, that's that's not important. So... So really, that's, yeah, kind of use that as much as you want, but don't feel constrained by it. Um, you know, I don't own all of the terrain necessary to play each of those scenarios exactly as I write them. And and that doesn't bother me. You know, I will use what I have and, and find a way to set up the table that, that more or less matches what I've said. And And I like it that way because then it, you know, everybody has their own kind of uh, what makes a table look good yeah. to them. You know, I actually, I actually prefer tables generally that have that are set in this kind of like temperate grassland. Because you know? mm-hmm. I have the specific type of mat. That's how I play most of my games. It's how I base my figures in yeah. in general. So that's that's how I tend to do it. So a lot of my things, my my dust bowl town probably gets retranslated to. Actually, it's on the the edge of a forest, you know, Mm -hmm. and there's a few trees still here. So, yeah, so take it all with a grain of salt and um, use it any way you want, really. That that said, you did say earlier, it gives us, as as you wisely pointed out, it gives us an (laughs) excuse to uh, collect new things. Uh, Cough, cough, I may have uh, purchased a swamp mat. <laughs> um anyway uh let's let's talk about um the elephant in the room now the last time you were on covid was new and exciting in the world <laughs> and we didn't know how it was going to impact gaming well now we really do um and hey we may know more later but having just come out of uh another lockdown in melbourne for me you know, I, I was very excited to get my rule book. It was held up because of uh, COVID lockdowns, but now I have it. I was very excited. It's like, yes, I get to play. And I was like, I can play with myself because no shops are open for gaming. And <laughs> even though restrictions have lifted, no one can come to my house to play. Ah, uh, um, I guess I'll play against myself. Um, but then I realized uh, that you put out an addition to Stargrave called Dead or Alive. Uh, it's a bounty hunting solo scenario, scenario generator, and it's free from the Osprey Games website. Also free, I might add, are printable cards for all the 50 powers in the game and a quick reference guide and um, crew uh, record sheets. Now, I say this because oftentimes we have to then photocopy them out of the back of our book and they end up, you know, either grotty or breaking the spine of our books. Uh, In researching this episode, I found all of those resources amazingly helpful. Thank you. But this free expansion is fantastic. You give 
a selection of rogues, uh, villains that bounties have been put out on, and you set out very clear scenarios um, and solo rules to be able to take your gang or your crew and then hunt them down. And again, there are new scenarios, um, new settings, new uh, you know proximity mines, robot networks. I mean, there's all sorts of weird and wonderful things that you can encounter. And these characters all have very specific personalities and powers that interact differently. So you're not just hunting, you know, a reskinned version of the same guy each time. Um, and each one can have a very different gang of followers. Can you talk to us a little bit about the process where you created this expansion and um, some of the things you like about it? Because this is amazing, especially since it's free and it was and it came out the day of release of the game. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a very kind of weird one for me because it. Um, so I'd actually literally just finished writing the first supplement for Stargrave, which isn't coming out until till later this year, mm-hmm. and. We we basically I, I I dabbled with a little bit of solo stuff in there. There's a few solo scenarios in that thing because it's something I just like to mm-hmm. to play with. But we we'd just gone into another lockdown here in in Britain, and I just you know I just saw this scenario where this game's going to come out and no one's going to be able to play it, um, and that's. <laughs> That's really heartbreaking as a as a designer, and um, I thought I got I've got to give people a way they can play this game as soon as they get the book. And and now retrospectively, I realize you know what that's that's just a good idea in general because usually when you get the book, you know yeah you get the excitement of of you know collecting the minis and, and, and building your gang and stuff, but you really want to play, and a lot of people aren't going to have that opportunity to play for. You know, even under normal conditions, maybe a few weeks or who knows how long until they can get together with their friends and play. So let me let me give people a way that they can just get the book, throw some minis on the table, try it out, mm-hmm. see what happens, and and you know, start experimenting and also be a little more ready when they actually come to that first game with their friends. Um, you know, they've tried out a few of the powers and mm-hmm. see what they do and stuff. Um, so I just and and this was probably about five months before. Stargrave was due to release. So I just kind of dropped everything and, and started just kind of writing out ideas for for how you could play it solo. I mean, at the most basic, you could just build two warbands and fight each other. But that, in my experience, doesn't, doesn't work out that way. It's not the best way to play solo. Um, because there's just too many decisions that you have to make for the other side. Um, that make it feel like either you're not playing optimally as the bad guys or I don't know. I've, I've just never, never found it worked quite as well as, as it could. Yeah. So, so instead I've given you, yeah, instead of kind of a bad guy you have to build, I've given you very specific bad guys. And this is kind of unusual in my game design to give, you know, what are specific characters, um, 
But this is a case where the specific character is hopefully going to show up once, and then you're going to catch them or kill them, and they're never going to be seen again. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I don't worry about it quite as much as I would normally. But, um, but yeah, I just wanted to create something where you kind of don't know what you're about to face. So there's, I can't remember, I think there's five aspects to, to each scenario that you roll randomly. The, the person you're going after, the setting it takes place, uh, what their gang looks like, uh, any kind of special conditions, be that weather, yeah, like the mines you mentioned. So that mm-hmm. once you roll up these things, you've, you know, there's, there's not a huge number on each list, but when you combine the possibilities, you end up with this huge number of different possible scenarios. Mm-hmm. And, and I came up with a situation where, or a mechanic whereby each of these marks, as I call them, the kind of bounties you're after, attempt to do something during the game. They have their own specific rules for what they're trying to do. So like one of them's trying to run around collecting things. One of them wants to come straight at you and kill you. Mm-hmm. The others are kind of doing different things. And then they all have this kind of point at which it flips and they decide, usually, actually, I'm getting out. You know, I'm running away. Um, so you have to deal with these people differently and uh, different strategies, but also because their ultimate goal in this game is not to kill you, there is a point at which they decide to run. So you have to figure out how to do it, and how, how to do whatever it is you want to do and how to do it quickly before they get away. Um, so the game isn't, isn't really about getting loot and it's not about necessarily wiping out the opposing war band it's it's about catching this guy exactly or this alien and um so it gives a very different kind of feel to the game and um and gives it a much more specific win-loss mechanic um, which i think is important to solo gaming but which i don't necessarily want in the main game right Um, you know in the main game it's more about this building the narrative and you kind of decide based on the outcome whether you won or lost because you know it's really that cut and dry but if you have one very specific agenda then, then it is and and that's that's good for solo gaming because you need that push towards kind of specific objective exactly um, but yeah and so it, it took a few months to well it took a it took about a month to write and then a couple of months to play test um solo Controlling things solo is, is really difficult in, in a war game because uh, you don't have, say, the limitations of a board game where you can say, they will always move three squares and exactly. you know, will, not, will not enter X squares. Whereas here, I don't know, even though I've told you more or less how to set up the board, I don't know exactly what your terrain looks like and I don't know exactly how large your table is. So the rules have to be a little bit more open and um, you do as a player have to be a little bit more open to kind of you know the rules don't spell out well they will spell out exactly what happens but you may want to it's better if you can be like that's what the rules say but i'm going to modify it just a little bit because i think it's more fun if the bad guy goes left instead of right here yeah Um, exactly but i think little decisions like that are fine it's it's those bigger decisions of like how do I use all the powers of the bad guys that I kind of wanted to cut out by, by telling you ex- exactly how they're going to use their powers. Um, so yeah, so in some ways it's, I, I've got a supplement coming out later with 
solo material, which isn't actually as developed as the solo material I've already put out. But oh. <laughs> that's just kind of how the world of COVID is, is you know, created. Yeah. I mean, the good thing about this was because we were just putting it out as a PDF and we are giving it away free. As soon as it was done, quick design, put it out, you know, mm-hmm. whereas obviously book publishing takes a lot longer. Exactly. Well, having, I mean, solo rules coming out for games in this era isn't necessarily a new phenomenon. We've seen it with quite a few games. And to be honest, I, I've really gone out of my way to collect a lot of them because mm-hmm. um, we did have a fairly long and brutal lockdown last year. <laughs> and I have to say that some feel more well-developed um, than others. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I may be so bold, this is by far the most developed solo uh, addition to a game system I've seen to date. And I mean, clearly you put a lot of time and thought into this. If only in the in the the bounties you have to hunt down, even before I got the Stargrave book, uh, because it was, again, held up because of lockdown, I read the character profiles over and over again um, as my bedtime reading before going to sleep because <laughs> it was so entertaining and they each had their own character and it was just, it was great. And, you know, and then as I read the rules and then went back and looked at the profiles again and how they interact with the, the environment, it just, it felt, it felt really good. Um, the narrative, the story, it's there and it makes me want to play it. And so this might be the first set of solo rules that I've really looked at and gone, yeah, I really want to play that. Uh, so <laughs> I, I'm looking forward to uh, school holidays coming up in a week so I can actually sit down and uh, capture some of these rogues or die trying. Um, but yeah, anyway, uh, just, well, I think, um, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, I think when you're starting with a narrative basis for your game, it's, it's much easier to kind of add solo onto that. Um, because, you know, again, your first, your first goal is to tell a fun story. It's not to, to win. I mean, like I said, mm-hmm. it does have a more specific win and lose, but, but it's really about, are you going to catch this guy? Right. You know, not, it's not about points, you know, which can be fun, but, it doesn't kind of draw you in again and again, whereas I think this does. And, um, and I have spent a lot of time over the last few years working on solo mechanics. I've got a, another game that's all solo, basically. And so, you know, luckily I wasn't coming to this completely cold. <laughs> I could draw on a lot of things I'd done before to, uh, to bring that in. Well, well, people have been adapting Rangers of Shadow Deep, which is your solo game, yeah. um, to science fiction settings uh, as side fan projects for years. I've been seeing it online. Um, but now, you know, they have an actual science fiction game to do that with. So, uh, I, you know, people have to be excited about that, right? Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I actually, I really enjoyed seeing people con- convert it to, to, to sci-fi. It tends to... When you do that, you, you end up with a very kind of it works for Star Wars because the you know the Jedi's map to to the fantasy better than, than certain things. It, you know, if you wanted a harder sci-fi, it doesn't work quite as well. Right. So hopefully, yeah, for, for those people that want a harder or more military sci-fi, the, the system will work better for yeah. that. I think. 
I think it also, in my case, might be a good way to jump in because I haven't had the opportunity to play Frostgrave in the past. So for me, this might be uh, someone who has played a lot of those military, harder-edged um, combat games. This yeah. this sounds like a nice way to ease into the Stargrave Frostgrave <laughs> universe. I can't wait. Very excited. All right. Well, Joseph, thank you so much for coming on. I know you've been busy. Yeah, it's been um, fun. You've been in a million places, and um, you know everyone wants to talk Stargrave. And I'm so excited that you took the time to join us today, man. It's uh, no again, I'm I'm super excited about playing this, and uh, it looks great. Uh, congratulations on its release. I know you're happy about thank that. You. And yep. Cheers. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, and you guys listening, thank you for taking the time to listen to Cast Dice. Uh, if you have any questions or suggestions for a future show or you just want to say hi, I know a lot of people have uh, when Melbourne went through its most recent lockdown, especially since I was on a temporary hiatus from recording um, due to work. Uh, tons of you messaged uh, and it was nice to be missed. Thank you, guys. It The messages mean more than I can express. Um, if you would like to send a message, please go to Facebook, Cast Dice, C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E. Uh, just shoot us a message. Uh, you'll, you're guaranteed a response. My name is Brad. Hi. You were definitely going to hear from me because I'm the only one on the other end of that uh, message machine. Um, but seriously, thank you. And um, look for more great Cast Dice content coming. We have a lot in the pipe. Uh, you know, it's amazing. Yeah, this It being a weekly show. It's been running for years, and you take six weeks off, and then all of a sudden, the backlog for episodes is unbelievable. And I have so much great stuff to share with you guys, and I can't wait. As our buddy Casey always says, when you are playing the games that we know and love, I hope your dice roll hot. I hope your beverages are cold. But more than anything else, we at Cast Dice hope that you are having fun. Stay safe out there, guys. Good night.
Hey, Seamus, hope you're rolling lots of 20s. <laughs>